Hello and welcome. This is Christianity, the backstory. Looking between the lines of church history and the New Testament. I think it's been over six months this time, but here it is, chapter 8, Acts of the Spotlight, about a book in the New Testament that is often referred to as Acts of the Apostles. It's the book that tells us all we need to know about what happened after Jesus was taken up into heaven, according to many reviews, which simply go through the story it presents, looking at what the author is telling us, and drawing this up as the history of the early church. In this review, we're going to be more interested in what the author is not telling us. This is going to be a long chapter, so I'm breaking it up into episodes of about 20 minutes each this time. So my plan was to start by illustrating the the intent of the author of Acts by doing a quick survey of the book which is what I've done. But in the middle of this survey, there's a bit of a sidetrack, an excursion I went on when a big question surfaced and just wouldn't go away. I started looking at it from all different angles, taking in its significance, getting a feel for it. I'd move on and then I'd go back to it because it's a good question. The sort of thing this podcast is here to inspect. In the introduction, I said we'd be asking questions when when you're supposed to move on. I said we'd be stopping to see the leprechauns. What I meant by this was, when we arrive at those little leaps of faith that usually go unnoticed, those strange little things that are a part of the Christian belief system because they're necessary to connect the dots and make it all work, I was saying that when we come across them, we're going to stop and have a good look at how strange they are, and how they might not be so small after all, and how some of them are absolutely foundational. That's what it's like with these leprechauns. You're not going to see them unless you stop in one place for a while. These leprechauns are Christian assumptions, and they are very good at hiding. This one is not just an assumption, like it's not just something that, if it's true, it fits in nicely and everything is fine. This one doesn't make sense no matter how you look at it. It's a problem that, unless a solution can be found, and I see no way that there can be a logical solution to this, It's a problem that means the Christian story, the story of Christian origins that puts Paul in this unique position, makes no sense. It does not work. If a Christian apologist can come up with an answer to this that works logically, doesn't look like a sermon, combined with one of those games with the plastic mallet and the moles popping up out of the holes here and there, I'll be really impressed. So the sidetrack happened when, in the writing of the Survey of Acts, I got to a place called Antioch. So that's where it's at, and we'll get to it in due course. I'm going to start by giving my premise. It seems to me that Acts is the work of an author who has set out to substantiate something. I find it helpful to look up the meaning of words at times, so to substantiate something is to provide evidence to support or prove the truth of it. I think the intention of the author of Acts is to substantiate Christianity as the religion of Jesus, an intent that I believe a survey of the book demonstrates. This is an author who is trying to show that Christianity existed in Jerusalem at the time of the disciples, although in actual fact 
He only strongly implies this by telling the story the way he does. But the thing is, within this story, there is a lot of evidence for the opposite conclusion. What the author does do effectively is substantiate the fact that Christianity can be traced back to Antioch. We'll see that there is a good amount of evidence to support or prove the truth of this. When you put together the evidence for this conclusion, found in Acts and other early Christian documents, it makes sense. The evidence stacks up, there is corroboration, and no reason to suspect the authors want us to believe something that may not be true. But then we come up against a very significant problem. Tracing the belief system of Christianity back in time, how do we get from Antioch to Jerusalem? That's the question. It's about what people were thinking. There's a group of people in Jerusalem who need to have believed pretty much the same things that people were believing in Antioch. So here we go. Acts of the Apostles. Here begins the survey. Apostles. It's a strange word, so I looked it up to see what it means. Wikipedia. Quote, An apostle, in its most literal sense, is an emissary, literally one who is sent off. The purpose of such sending off is usually to convey a message, and thus messenger is a common alternative translation. Other common translations include ambassador and envoy. The term derives from the Greek of the New Testament and was used for Jesus' original twelve apostles, including Peter, James and John, as well as a wider group of early Christian figures, including Paul, Barnabas and Junia, unquote. So, one who is sent off to convey a message, an envoy. This would mean a representative of Jesus and his message. So the disciples of Jesus were his apostles, according to this definition. They were the ones who were sent off as his representatives. They were familiar with his message because they were witnesses. Mark 3.13, quote, Then Jesus went up on the mountain and called for those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve of them, whom he designated as apostles, to accompany him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, unquote, and then he identifies them by name. So we're looking at Acts of the Apostles, a story that is meant to be about these men who were chosen and taught by Jesus and sent out as his envoys. So for people who call themselves his followers, this is supposed to be about Jesus and the message he came with. He taught his disciples and said they were to be his witnesses. That's the setting that the book of Acts opens with, after Jesus has left the scene. Acts 1.8, Jesus speaking to his disciples, quote, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, unquote. The beginning of this message going out to the world. Okay, so this being Acts of the Apostles, let's have a look at the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of these men who were chosen by Jesus to go out with his message. The document is generally understood to have been written by the same author who wrote Luke. It's addressed to a man called Theophilus, like Luke is. And the author of Acts refers to his former book, referring to the book of Luke, supposedly. I haven't looked into the similarities in writing style and other evidence for these being two documents written by the same author, a view held by most historians from what I've seen. 
but there is one very significant area where they differ. In Acts, there are many negative references to the Jews, and in Luke, there are none. This is a big question to me. As we'll see, to the author of Acts, the Jews are clearly the villains. If the author of Luke is the same person, why does he not do the same thing in his Gospel? Why does he not do the same thing as the author or redactor of John and condemn the Jews who were around at the time of Jesus, saying they were rejecting the truth and trying to kill Jesus? This is a major theme in John and Acts, significant enough to say that Acts has more in common with John than it does with Luke, even though they are quite different in other ways. In John, the theme is that the Jews are against the Chosen One of God, Jesus. They are evil and they want to kill him. In Acts, the theme is that the Jews are against the Chosen One of God, Paul. They're the bad guys and they want to kill him. And the Gentiles are the good guys, receiving the truth with gladness of heart, honouring the word of the Lord and being filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, etc., etc. As with the Gospels, I think Acts has layers, with the author working from earlier source material at least in the earlier chapters set in Jerusalem. So here's the first two verses of Acts. Quote, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Unquote. We're going to run this document in fast forward to get a bit of an overview summarizing the things the apostles are recorded to have done, their acts. We're going to ask questions of this story. This book of Acts is our stage play. What's going on behind the scenes? Either side of the stage, out the back. And what about this audience? Who are they? The people this play is made for. Why are they so easily carried along by the production, so willing to accept the direction that they're being taken in? Could it be that the play is being performed specially for the people who are going to like what they're told about who the villains are, who the good guys are, people who are going to like the outcome, how what they've been taught to believe is portrayed as the gospel truth? And most importantly, what is the writer, the creator of this performance, doing? Just before I get started, I'd like to mention a book and some podcasts I've benefited from greatly. The Mythmaker by Hayam Maccabee. I'm not sure how to say his first name, or his last for that matter. In particular, the author of this book makes a case for the idea that Jesus was a Pharisee, identifying Pharisaic teaching that Jesus was teaching from, and simply recognising the tradition that he was teaching within. The Pharisees were very much respected teachers whose teaching shows a lot of integrity, and this brings into question the condemnation of them found in the New Testament. I dismissed the Pharisees fairly readily in my assessment of who Jesus might have been aligned with, and this book made me aware of how valuable a Jewish perspective can be. And this leads me to a man I have a great deal of respect for after listening to many podcasts where he teaches the Jewish perspective on the New Testament documents. Michael Skoback, in a podcast series entitled A Rabbi Cross-Examines the New Testament, on a show called Tanakh Talk, hosted by William Hall, Rabbi Skoback describes the Jewish setting of the New Testament, starting with the Matthew Gospel, as I recall, 
I have learned so much from these podcasts, and I think it stands to reason to say that you cannot have a good understanding of Jesus without an appreciation of how his teaching fits within its Jewish setting. I also listened a second time to Dale Martin at Yale University, his introduction to the New Testament series on podcast, which I think is very good, very straightforward historical analysis, whether or not you agree with him. Okay, Acts of the Apostles. Here's the story we're given. After Jesus is taken up into heaven, his disciples return to Jerusalem, go into an upstairs room where they are staying, and they are named. They are all men, but then it mentions the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Next thing, Peter is standing in front of a group of believers that numbers about 120. He speaks about Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus to the Romans, and he says he needs to be replaced. And he says it has to be someone who had been with them the whole time that Jesus had gone in and out among them, from the time of John's baptism right up until when Jesus was taken up. Apparently there were at least two other Jews who had been present throughout this time. This man is to be added to their number, and it seems the number is twelve. It says he is to be a witness of the resurrection. But if the man needs to have been among them during the whole time that Jesus had been their rabbi, it's likely that the idea is that he is to be a witness of what Jesus taught as well. A man called Matthias is chosen. Then they're all together in one place. The Holy Spirit comes on them and they begin to speak in different languages that Jews from other countries recognize and understand. Then Peter gets up and says this day was prophesied and he quotes from the book of Joel in the Hebrew Bible. He says to them, men of Israel, addressing them as a Jewish crowd. And he goes on to say that Jesus was handed over to them. And he says that they, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. But then God raised him. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. And he says, quote, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Unquote. All Israel, responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. A bit of a red flag there. These words are unreasonable, to say the least. And they're cut to the heart and say to Peter and the other apostles, What shall we do? And Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Then there's a community devoted to the apostles' teaching and the apostles performing many wonders and signs. All the believers are together and have everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they share with anyone in need. Sounds like they're living by the teaching of Jesus. Let's call that a blue flag, maybe more likely to be what followers of Jesus might do. It goes on to say they meet together in the temple courts and enjoy the favour of all the people. Then Peter and John go up to the temple. Peter heals a crippled beggar and draws a crowd and then takes the opportunity to have another go at the men of Israel, the killers of Jesus. But they're given the opportunity to repent of their wicked ways and have their sins wiped out. Then Peter and John are seized and put into jail for their preaching. The next day they are brought before the Jewish religious leaders who are trying to stop them, and they say, quote, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard, unquote. 
Then the believers are sharing possessions again, not claiming any possessions as their, as their own, and those in need are provided for. A man called Barnabas sells a field and puts the money at the disciples' feet. Acts 4.36 There are other people doing this, but for some reason the author particularly wants us to know that Barnabas did it. And then a couple who sell a field but don't put it all at the disciples' feet, not letting on that they kept part of it for themselves, drop dead, under the reproachful and condemning eye of Peter. All of a sudden there is no forgiveness, even for generous people who might have told a lie. More miraculous signs and wonders by the apostles, and they're put in jail by the high priest and his associates. But an angel of the Lord gets them out of there, and they go preaching again. Then they're picked up a second time, brought before the Sanhedrin, and these religious leaders want to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel gets up, and he compares the Jesus movement to two other movements involving men who rally to a popular leader, the second being a revolt against the Romans, saying, leave them be, and let's see if God is with them. And now let's speed it up a bit. We're still with the disciples in that original community. Seven administrators are chosen to deal with the daily affairs, including Stephen, who is seized and brought before the Sanhedrin where he gives a long speech ending in condemnation of the Jews for betraying and murdering Jesus. He is then stoned to death, and we see the first appearance of Paul, then called Saul, looking after people's cloaks and giving approval to the proceedings. A persecution breaks out against the so-called Jerusalem church, and all except the apostles are scattered. Next thing, Paul is seeking out and imprisoning members of this movement. Then there are some stories about Philip, another one of the seven, and Simon the sorcerer, an interesting and mysterious figure that makes an appearance in other early Judeo-Christian documents. And then comes the conversion of Paul. On his way to Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him. Jesus speaks to him, and he is blinded. He is told to go into the city where he is visited by a disciple named Ananias who reluctantly places his hands on him to restore his sight. And see him filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias receives word from the Lord that Paul is his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles. Then Paul spends several days with the disciples in Damascus and begins to preach in the synagogues. The Jews conspired to kill him, but Paul learns of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but he gets away. Then he goes to Jerusalem and tries to join the disciples, but they're afraid of him. But then Barnabas supports Paul and, and tells them that Jesus had spoken to him and about how he was preaching fearlessly. He stays with them and preaches, and the Grecian Jews try to kill him. So he's sent off to Tarsus, which is where he's from. Then there's a time of peace. Peter heals a few people, then has a vision where a voice from heaven tells him, to eat foods that are considered unclean by Jews. He is called to the house of a God-fearing centurion called Cornelius, where the whole household receives the Holy Spirit and is baptised. There is some concern about this in Jerusalem, but things are cool after Peter explains. A bit about the spreading of the message, and Barnabas is sent to Antioch. And then chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul also called Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Unquote. Antioch, Paul's home church. The church he will be sent out from. The church he will return to many times. And the church where, after Barnabas and he teach great numbers of people for a whole year, disciples are first called Christians. The use of the word disciples here obviously doesn't refer to the disciples of Jesus. They're in Jerusalem, right? Our author referred to them previously when he said Paul went to Jerusalem and tried to join the disciples. He might have said the disciples of Jesus, to be clearer. Just saying the disciples might be unhelpful for people who don't know whose disciples you're talking about. But we know the story is all about Jesus. So we know he's talking about the men who were actually his disciples. But then here we have the disciples in Antioch, and they're people who have been taught by Barnabas and Paul for a year. Okay, so according to Wikipedia, in the ancient world, a disciple was a follower or adherent of a teacher. Sounds about right. A disciple is someone who is following and being taught by a teacher. So it doesn't entirely make sense to call these people in Antioch disciples of Jesus when he's not there teaching them. Followers maybe, but not disciples. It's more likely that these people are disciples of Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas's name is, is mentioned first at this stage, but we all know who was likely to have been the compelling personality at the centre of this church in Antioch. If any of the disciples of Jesus were in Antioch at this time, surely they would have made the list of people mentioned at the start of chapter 13. Quote, now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Unquote. Antioch, Paul's stronghold. Was it just the place where the name Christian happened to be first used, or was it the city where Christianity began? To avoid confusion, I need to mention that there are two Antiochs referred to in the New Testament, Syrian Antioch and Pisidian Antioch. The one I've been talking about is Syrian Antioch. I'll continue to refer to Syrian Antioch as simply Antioch, and I'll call the other one Pisidian Antioch if I mention it. So, moving on. After this, there's talk of a famine. Some prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch and a severe famine is predicted, one that would spread over the entire Roman world. Then chapter 11, verse 29, quote, The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul, unquote. The disciples again. These people in Antioch respond by sending help to Judea, and they are referred to as the disciples. In Acts 14.21, after Paul and Barnabas go to Derbe, it says they preached the good news and won a large number of disciples. Again, a disciple was a follower or adherent of a teacher. Of course, it is quite possible they might have chosen to use the word disciple to mean the followers of Jesus. But that's not going with the down-to-earth applicable in that time and place meaning of the word disciple. In my understanding, the closest word we have to disciple in the modern English-speaking world is apprentice. 
It's a more practical thing, involving guidance and instruction by a teacher that is present. Again, this still could be implied in a spiritual way to Jesus, but Paul was teaching very specific and detailed theology that, as we'll see, he claims exclusive rights to. He was the teacher of a new gospel, disclosed in his teaching and his letters. This will become more evident as we move on. And something to keep in mind with the use of the word disciple in Acts is that it is the author who is choosing to use this word. He's using the word to refer to people who he believes are on the right track. So, over the course of this podcast, we've been tracing Christianity back in time, looking for a starting point, and on this journey we've definitely arrived at Antioch. The people of this church in Antioch were known as Christians, and we can assume that what they believed was pretty much in keeping with the teaching we have in Paul's letters. And if they were disciples of Paul, and he said he was the chosen one of God to deliver the divine message, Galatians 1.15, quote, God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Unquote. If Paul said that sort of thing to people and they believed him, they would have believed whatever he said, just like Christians do to this day. Can this dynamic be taken back further in time, beyond Antioch? This belief in whatever Paul says. The next step is Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem who were followers of Jesus, did they believe what was being taught in Antioch? Were they Christians? Alright, so ends episode one of the chapter Acts of the Spotlight. Coming up next, episode two.